Amen and amen. Now it is, concluding this Sunday, it is four weeks before Resurrection Sunday. And this morning uh, we begin uh, my three-part series leading up to Resurrection Sunday. I know you're sitting there doing the math. We have four Sundays and three weeks worth of sermons, and that doesn't work out very well. But as I said, I think last week, the week before Easter, the week before Resurrection Sunday, my dear friend, uh, Dwayne Deskins, will be here to preach for us on Palm Sunday, which means I'm starting my series one week early. That means this morning. So we'll be preaching this morning next Sunday, and then Easter Sunday on this series. So this morning, we start our three-part series, The Case for Easter. Um, This series is based on the book, I'm just going to tell you right now, there's going to be very little of this that's original at all, okay? This series is based on the book written by Lee Strobel. And uh, it is also the topic of the Connect group that I am teaching on Sunday afternoons by the same name. And uh, incidentally, I want to just drop a little something into your ears for your hearing pleasure. Um, Go on Amazon and buy the little 90-page book by Lee Strobel called The Case for Easter. It's paperback, 90 pages. It's got an introduction, three chapters, and a conclusion for three bucks. Buy several. It's not going to send you into the poorhouse. And give them out to people who may not have an interest, the same kind of interest that you do in Christ Jesus. It, I highly recommend that book. Um, it's very easy to read, and it is incredibly engaging. I am not a fast reader by anybody's imagination whatsoever, and I read the entire book in a matter of hours. Could not get through, uh, set it down. Now, with respect to this series that I'm going to begin this morning, we're going to dra- address three, three key questions. Uh, one question for each of the three weeks. So this this morning we're going to be uh, addressing the first question. These three questions deal with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This first question that we're going to look at this morning, uh, was Jesus really dead after his ordeal on the cross? That's the question we're going to be discussing today in your hearing. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about was his tomb actually empty on that first Easter morning. And on the third Easter morning, Resurrection Sunday, did credible people subsequently encounter him after that morning? So with that said, let's get started. Amen? Let's get started. So... Let's start with our first question. Was Jesus really dead after his ordeal on the cross? This is an important question to answer. Believe it or not, this is an important question to answer because the resurrection is the, not a, 
the supreme vindication of Jesus' claim to deity. And it is the basis for all of Christianity's claims. If he was not, if he did not die, he could not have resurrected. If he didn't resurrect, he's not God. And everything that we believe is a lie. With regards to this question, allow me to just say this. Yes, the question, was Jesus really dead after his ordeal on the cross? Yes, that is a real and actual question that has been around for a very, very long time. Since the 7th century, in fact. With its roots being found in the Quran. Surah 4, verses 156 and 157. Quote, And they're saying, We slew the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of Mary, the Messenger of Allah. Whereas, in fact, they had neither slain Him nor crucified Him. End quote. That's the Quran. The question as to whether Jesus actually died on the cross was fielded during the 19th century as well by those who tried to explain the resurrection away by suggesting that Jesus actually only fainted from exhaustion while on the cross. Or that He had been given some kind of drug that made Him only appear to die. And that He had later revived after He had been put in the tomb and He had been revived by the cool, damp air contained in that sealed tomb. As a result of that, conspiracy theories abounded, pointing out that in Mark chapter 15, verse 36, says that Jesus had been given some kind of fluid, some kind of liquid on a sponge, and that only eight verses later in Mark chapter 15 and verse 44, Pilate admits in Scripture he is surprised at how quickly that Jesus died, resulting in the theory that Jesus' reappearance wasn't a miraculous resurrection at all, but rather a fortuitous resuscitation. And that the tomb was empty because He actually continued to live, never having died in the first place. This is known as the swoon theory. This swoon theory has actually continued to appear throughout the 20th century and continues to flourish even to this day. Author Lee Strobel asks the questions, but what does the evidence really establish? Theories aside, hypothesis aside, what does the evidence really establish what actually happened at the crucifixion what was Jesus's cause of death is there any possible way 
that he could have survived this ordeal. Let's be clear. This was an execution, quote, of unimaginable brutality. A beating so barbarous that it shocks the conscience and a form of capital punishment so depraved that it stands as wretched testimony to man's inhumanity to man, end quote. In fact, crucifixion was, quote, a form of cruelty so vile that the Romans exempted their own citizens from it, except for cases of high treason, end quote. It all began after the Last Supper, after Jesus and His disciples had convened on the Mount of Olives and specifically in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where Jesus set about praying all night long, in light of the amount of suffering He was about to have to endure, Jesus was naturally experiencing a massive amount of stress. Luke's Gospel in the 22nd chapter says, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like great drops of blood falling to the ground. If you'll remember at this moment in time, just prior to that verse, Jesus said that I'm so, modern English here, I'm so stressed out right now. I'm near death. Have you ever known of or heard of a person where the pressures of life came down on them so hard that their heart stopped? They blew a blood vessel, as they say, etc., and they just cease to live. Jesus admits going into this night in the Garden of Gethsemane that the stress and the anxiety is so catastrophically high that he's near death and as he attempts to pray, his sweat is like blood. Well, that situation right here, his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. That is an actual medical condition and it's known as hematidrosis. Although not common, it is a very real condition that accompanies high degrees of psychological stress. Severe anxiety causes chemicals to be released that break down the tiny capillaries in the sweat glands, resulting in small amounts of blood to be released into these glands, giving the appearance of bloody sweat. And it wasn't too terribly long ago 
that a doctor told me personally that it doesn't take an awful lot of blood to turn a fluid very red. In addition, this set the skin, this this releasing of blood, this this uh, uh, re- release of chemicals that are breaking down the capillaries, um, this set the skin up to be very, very fragile. So that when Jesus was flogged later that day, his skin would have been extremely sensitive. As for that flogging, now I'm going to be honest with you, I don't have time uh, this morning to go into the horrible details here and now, but suffice it to say that it would have been a terribly, terribly brutal ordeal. A typical flogging consisted of 39 lashes according to Hebrew law. We've always heard that, and that is truth. The thing that we need to understand, however, there was not a Hebrew guard inflicting this punishment. They were Romans. And so, with the fact that Romans were were dispensing this punishment depending on the mood and or the disposition of the guards, which there was usually two, one on either side. Um, Applying this punishment could have gone on much longer than it normally would have according to Hebrew law. Um, Alexander Methrel, Dr. Alexander Methrel, MD, PhD, said of these Roman floggings, quote, we know that many people would die from this kind of beating even before they could get, could be crucified. At the least, the victim would experience tremendous pain and go into hypovolemic shock, end quote. Now, like me... If you're not familiar with this term, hypovolemic shock is best understood this way, by breaking down the word and just understanding what each portion of it means. Hypo meaning low, vol meaning volume, and emic referring to blood. So hypovolemic shock means that the victim would have been suffering from the effects of losing large amounts of blood as a result of having been flogged. This is clearly seen in the Gospel accounts as Jesus staggered His way to Calvary, collapsing under the weight of the cross along the way, and then later saying, I thirst while on the cross. All these references are classic symptoms of this condition. Dr. Methrell continued by saying this, quote, Because of the terrible effects of this beating, there's no question that Jesus was already in serious, if not critical condition, even before the nails were ever driven through His hands and feet. Regarding the actual crucifixion itself, the process would have gone something to this effect. Jesus would have been laid down on the ground. 
his arms would then have been outstretched and his wrists would have been nailed to, I'm sure, a word that many of you are familiar with, the patibulum. The patibulum is the crossbar of the cross. And how they did this was what they, they used five to seven inch long tapered spikes. This crossbar would have been separate from the upright vertical uh, beam at this point. The nailing of the wrists would have crushed what is known as, those of you in the medical field know all this, but would have crushed what is known as the median nerve as it passed through the wrist entering into the cross. Um, the, medium ner- the median nerve is the largest nerve going out to the hand. The subsequent pain that resulted that Jesus experienced would have been likened unto something like this. I want you to imagine someone taking a pair of pliers, getting a hold of what we commonly refer to as the funny bone, the ulna nerve. And we we know every time we hit our funny bone, how many loves that experience? That experience is one of life's immediate responses. You hit your funny bone, it takes literally a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a second for you to react to that impact. Now, I want you to imagine the nail going through Christ's wrist, crushing and subsequently severing this median nerve. And we're going to liken this to someone going up to you with a pair of pliers, having access to your funny bone, clamping down on that funny bone while twisting and not releasing it. Resulting in what many historians say in a paralysis of the hands because the nerve is now severed That's why oftentimes in pictures or whatever, you see the hands curled. The pain involved in all of this, as we just tried to illustrate, would have been absolutely unbearable. So much so that it was literally beyond words to describe... What was happening to the crucified? In fact, they actually had to invent a new word to describe this level of pain. This new word was excruciating. You say, nah, yeah. Literally, the word excruciating finds its origins Out of the cross. That's what excruciating means. Out of the cross. The anguish created during crucifixion was so indescribably intense that a new word needed to be dis- needed to be invented just to describe it. I want you to ponder on that for just a moment. 
at this point in the procedure, Jesus would have been hoisted up as the crossbar was attached to the vertical post that was affixed to the ground. And spikes were subsequently driven through his feet where the nerves there, they're a different name but the similar effect, the nerves there would have also been crushed, resulting in a similar type of pain. As Jesus hung there, his shoulders would have subsequently dislocated from their sockets, fulfilling the first, or fulfilling Psalm 22 and verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. At this point, now hanging in a vertical position. Jesus endured an agonizing and slow death. You see, I, I, I found that sometimes people don't even know why you die on a cross when you're crucified. And history says that not everyone was nailed to a cross. Sometimes you were tied to a cross. Uh, and it's, so with that said, we realize just by deductive reasoning that the nails aren't really the thing that's killing you. Right? Something about hanging on a cross is what the death sentence is all about, and the nails are just a form of attachment and torture. So, how does Jesus die? Well, first of all, we know that he's suffering from hypovolemic shock because if you happen to buy Strobel's little book, you'll find out the absolutely repulsive and revolting extent at which the Romans went to to make sure that the, the, the phrase, your back is laid bare, comes to pass. Because skin no longer exists. Oftentimes, the muscles have been literally ripped from bone. Literally ripped from bone. And no one is going to promise you that your Roman torturer is very accurate with his whip, and it has been testified throughout history that sometimes those whip lashes find their way to the eyes and the face. And so we know Jesus is suffering from hypovolemic shock because from roughly the neck down to above the knees has now been torn apart one Jewish historian said, with one's bowels being laid bare. How one could walk, I have no idea. But how does this happen? Well, Jesus is now hanging between heaven and earth and He is forced to endure an agonizing and slow death and this is what happens. He dies of asphyxiation that resulted in cardiac arrest. See, the problem with hanging there the way the Romans hung a person was that your body and the musculature, along with your lungs and such, all the entire functioning apparatus is locked in a position where you can only inhale. And 
In order to exhale, you have to lift your body up, relaxing the diaphragm, giving your lungs the space that they required to inhale or exhale and inhale again. And when you finally get that done, you get to relax. The difficulty is this. Have you ever been in pain and felt stress as a result of it and it exhausts you? Just the reaction to pain the problem is, is that now as you're trying to lift yourself up to be able to exhale, you're lifting on metal nails that have gone through your, your ankles and you're pivoting on metal on bone in your wrists. And so Jesus sets about the long, arduous process of dying through asphyxiation resulting in cardiac arrest. Because of his struggle to breathe, Jesus would have developed a condition known as respiratory acidosis, which eventually, and that's a, a process that I have no time to talk about right now, which eventually led to an irregular and erratic heartbeat. And at this point, Jesus would have known that he was near or at the point of death. And we then see the fulfillment of the 23rd chapter of the book of Luke, verse 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I, now I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. However, prior to his death and due to the hypovolemic shock that he was experiencing combined with a subsequent and sustained rapid heartbeat, a collection of fluid around both his heart and his lungs developed known as pericardial effusion and pleural effusion respectively. And it developed contributing to his heart failure. These effusions are significant because of what is described in John's Gospel, chapter 19. And what's so funny about this verse is, can you imagine, John, seeing this phenomenon that we're going to read about right here take place and make note of it because he'd never seen anything like it. And he made note of it which was in reality a provision by the Lord God Himself for a time such as this to dispel myth and rumor about Christ's condition that He in fact didn't really die. Um, I'm sorry, John's Gospel, chapter 19. But when they came to Jesus and found that He was already dead, they did not break His legs. Now remember, they've just broken the two men's legs on either side. The reason they did that is we, they were coming up real hard on Sabbath. And they needed to make sure these guys died quickly. They had to get them dead, get them off the cross, because they could have lingered quite some time. But without legs to lift themselves, they'll suffocate faster. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. 
interestingly, once the spear had apparently pierced and passed through Jesus' lung and into his heart, the appearance of this sudden effusive liquid, this flow, is consistent with what modern medicine would expect to see happen under these circumstances. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know how it is that anybody could suggest that Jesus didn't die on the cross if for no other reason, if not for the hypovolemic shock, if not for the, the other medical conditions that, that happened to him. How did he make it through that? And remember that these Roman guards, these are not physicians. These are not people who understood anatomy and so on and so forth. They don't know uh, medical uh, nomenclature and procedures at all. But what they do know and what they are expert in is killing people. They know when someone is dead and when they're not. And although this is not in my notes, and I'm hoping I'm not going too terribly long, um, the reality is is that Roman law required that if you're a Roman soldier and you're on crucifixion duty and you take someone off a cross that's not dead, you're now getting executed. So trust me, the Romans had an awful lot to gain by making certain that the people hung there that day, Jesus specifically for our purposes, was dead. And with that, with the spear, the blood and the water flowing from Jesus' side, while still suspended on the cross, there was absolutely no doubt that Jesus was dead. On March 21st, 1986, an article, article, I'm sorry, I'll get it out here in a minute, appeared in the Journal of American Medical, of, uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association. That article was written by Dr. William D. Edwards. That article was entitled, was entitled on the physical death of Jesus Christ. You can actually get that article online if you wish to. In that article, Dr. Edwards concluded, quote, Clearly, the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross, appeared to be at odds with modern medical knowledge, end quote. Now, as I draw this to a close, this morning, what I have done, at least to my mind, is successfully sought out answers to the question, was Jesus really dead? after his ordeal on the cross. I did this by addressing the questions, what does the evidence really establish? I think we, just, we got to that point. What actually happened at the crucifixion? I think we covered that. 
What was Jesus' cause of death? Right now, if I polled the entire congregation, pretty sure you knew. You would be able to tell me. And is there any possible way he could have survived this ordeal? With those questions, at least to my mind, sufficiently addressed this morning for this setting. To my mind, and to probably others, one question still remains. And that is this. What could have possibly motivated a person to agree to endure this sort of punishment? What would possibly possess anyone to willingly go through what the Lord Jesus did? As a matter of fact, let's just jump back a few minutes when I stated that in the beginning of this message that this type of execution was so vile that unless you were guilty of high treason, not even Roman citizens had to worry about this. That's how bad this was. So, what would possibly, possibly possess you to do this? And the answer can be summed up in one word. That word would be love. Romans chapter 5. You see, at just the right time, When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. They might. It's not looking good. But they might. But God demonstrates His own love for the, us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Then, of course, the perennial favorite. John chapter 3 for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through Him. Did Jesus actually die on the cross that day? Jesus actually died on the cross that day. 
if for no other reason than us peering into what scholars and medical professionals have said and looked at and, and, and analyzed. Despite opposition, Jesus could not possibly have, have lasted at all. It's impossible that He could have done what He did and had no medical attention whatsoever, but actually set up to suffer and die. The Word of God setting that aside, your faith setting that aside, Jesus could not possibly, possibly have survived. Do you realize that in all of history there are only three people ever, ever noted in history as having survived or come off a cross alive? Three. The Jewish historian worked for Rome. What was his name? I'm sorry? Josephus. Joseph. Thank you, Cliff. Thank you, Wanda. Josephus testified to the fact that during an execution, he happened to notice that three of his associates were hanging from crosses. And I believe he went. He went to whoever was in charge. My mind, it, it, it slips my mind right now. He went to whoever was in charge and told him. And that person in charge immediately had those three people removed from those crosses. And Josephus testifies to the fact that two of them died under medical care. And only one survived. So in all of history, we only know of one person actually surviving a crucifixion. And Jesus wasn't one of them. Jesus died on the cross. He was subsequently removed from said cross and buried in a borrowed tomb. Next week, we're going to look at this. The evidence of the missing body. Was Jesus' body really absent from the tomb? Now, you may be asking yourself, Michael, okay, that's fine, and this is very Easter-y. Why are you saying this? Let me tell you why I'm telling you this. I'm telling you this, and I've been preaching on redemption and the like. Those things surrounding the notion, the theological reality of redemption lately. Because we live in a world that is consistently and pers, pers, uh, pers, it's in decline perpetual decline and the body of Christ needs to know everything that the body of Christ can know in order to do the job that we've been given to do to the best of our ability in what may be these closing times why am I telling you this? Was it because of shock factor and it's gross? No. Because even in the 21st century, a concept fielded in the 7th century in the Quran is still alive and well, and that is Jesus did not even die. In fact, the Quran, the Muslims will tell you he was not so much as even crucified. There's actually a sect of Muslims who believes that he died in India. And they still, in Sri Lanka, 
still have a shrine there to his death and burial. There. That's why we need to understand what it is we believe. It's not just, yes, I believe. It's, why do I believe? Faith is fabulous. You have to have it. But when dealing with those who have none, you need something extra. Stand with me this morning.